2: Greetings New Book Network listeners. This is a podcast on history and today I'm with the author of Educating the Enemy: Teaching Nazis and Mexicans in the Cold War Borderlands, Dr. Jana Perillo and your NBN host Nathan Moore. Perillo is an associate professor of English education and studies education history methods at the University of Texas at El Paso. Her interests in race and citizenship Literature and writing resound in many publications, and also in her involvement at the National Endowment for the Humanities, the West Texas Writing Project, and the National Council of Teachers of English, where she served as Council Historian. How are you today, uh, Dr. Perillo?
0: I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Nathan.
2: What was your inspiration for deciding to embark on this research project? And was there a timetable adhered to for you?
0: Um, Well, all told, I think from the time that I started writing um, research grants to publication, it was really the better part of a decade. Um, The school that's at the center of this book, I mean, I, I write about many schools, but there's one in particular where most of the Operation Paperclip children um, attended is blocks from my home. And I saw an archival photograph of these. um, It was labeled in the newspaper here, Children of German Specialists um, at this school. And I knew when I saw that photograph um, that I wanted to learn more.
2: What has the reception been been like for you since the book's released? When, when was it released? Um, I'm sure it was in the past few months.
0: Yeah, it was released in, um, I think, February, late February. And it's been really great. It's been um, really busy. I've had some pieces out in Time Magazine, in the Boston Review, in the Washington Post. Um, I've been lucky to do a bunch of talks So, um, it's been, it's been great and it's been great to, um, do a lot in my community here since this is a book about El Paso.
2: Well, speaking of El Paso, can you tell me more about Fort Bliss and what really sets it apart from other relocation hotspots, um, in your Operation Paperclip, uh, research?
0: Yeah. So Operation Paperclip, um, comprised of different groups of Nazi scientists who came to the United States. The one who came to Fort Bliss for um, sort of the most um, well-known, for reasons that I can talk more about, um, and I think the largest group. Um, And so what sets it apart is that they were um, the scientists who created the V2 um, missile for the Third Reich, and they were brought here as part of this operation, which was put together in the closing days of World War II in 1945 um, to recruit German scientists to come work for the United States military. Um, And so this group was, um, was, was put together to build a missile for the United States Army. Um, and so that's what sets them apart. Um, well, and also that they were led by probably the most well-known of all of the scientists who came to the United States, Werner von Braun, who became well-known both because he helped to found NASA and because he became something of a Disney hero in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and so that sets this group apart.
2: You're also focusing on the children of scientists, which is really uh, unique, Um it sort of overshadows a lot of the adult scientists like Warner Von Braun um, and things. So before we delve further into it, what is the legacy of these children? Um, and do you tell their stories beyond childhood?
0: That's a great question. Um, so yeah, I'm an education historian and it's the children are really at the center of this book. Um, it's for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, because it's education history. Secondly, because as I show in the book, they really made this controversial um, military operation palatable to the American public. They were sort of the ambassadors um, for their parents in many ways. They were really young, um, they were pretty cute, and they were seemingly incredibly well-disciplined and enthusiastic students. And so they became the sort of emblem of the power of American public schools to democratize children. Um, The argument was if the children of fascists could be um, made democratic, anyone could. And so they did a lot of cultural and political um, and social work, um, both for the schools and for the military. Uh, And so that is, to me... um, really important, it's also true that there have been a number of books written about Operation Paperclip by people who are um, military historians and journalists and, um, you know, far more qualified in a lot of ways to tell their parents' story. Um, but no one's really given thought to the children. Um, and I think children are overlooked in history, Um in large ways just um, in general. So that's why I focus on the children and to think about um, the kind of work that they were doing for the schools and for American society.
2: Did you reference memoirs or writings or records from these children as they got older?
0: So, I conducted a number of oral histories um, and found that a lot of these former children themselves were incredible repositories. Um, I went to archives um, all over the country, and even, for example, I spent a month, all told, out at the National Archives in DC. And there is um, probably, you know, an entire room's worth of boxes on the scientists. It was an incredibly well-documented program, um, which is no surprise. But even though the children were um, integral, as I just mentioned, to this operation and were thought about, you know, families were planned into the operation from the very beginning. They knew that they wouldn't get the scientists that they wanted without them without relocating their families uh all that said they're still largely absent in the archives and so i had to turn to oral history i realized fairly early on and then the fact that so many of these former children were willing to talk to me that they had things not just like photographs and id cards but they had their um old report cards from when they were in El Paso. And in fact, um, for some of them who attended a small amount of um, schooling in Germany before they came here, some of them had those too. They just became this incredible archive in and of themselves. um, And in fact, had um, things that don't exist in any kind of publicly available archive. So in terms of their legacy, to go back to your question, I mean, they became um many of them particularly the males professionals um they became all of them american citizens in 1955 along with their parents in a lot of ways their stories are um or their legacy is fairly unremarkable and that was the point right for them to become kind of ordinary middle-class white americans they did um and so i don't really um I don't really tell their story beyond their childhood, in fact, beyond their three years that they lived in El Paso before they moved to Huntsville, Alabama. Um, but that, to me, is part of the point, is that by the time they left El Paso um, for Huntsville with their families to, um, to go work at Redstone Arsenal and then to build NASA, they were fairly unremarkable. They were like every other ordinary American white child living in the Jim Crow South, um, and ready to sort of blend in.
2: That's interesting. Um, did you find any parallels about uh, the relocation education of these f- former Nazi families with, say, the relocation of refugee Jewish uh, scientists and, you know, the community of Jews that fled Germany? Uh, the Project Manhattan in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, is a, a example that commonly comes up. Um, and we think of people like Bohr and Einstein, um do you see any parallels there
0: i haven't really thought um of them in terms of parallels so much as in terms of difference so you know when when those scientists came to the united states they came to a society that was still highly anti-semitic they were in many ways the exception rather than the rule right because we know that Um, it was really difficult for Jewish refugees to come to the United States. Uh, It didn't have much of a welcoming policy and it had pretty strict limits, including after the war, as these Nazi scientists were coming to the United States. And um, from what I understand, I think a lot of those uh, Jewish scientists um, faced um, difficulty with visas and such. None of that applied to these Nazi scientists. They were, first of all, not even brought in um, publicly and legally, (laughs) they, uh, it was kind of a, um, uh, I don't know, they call themselves undocumented immigrants. Um, and they largely were the military ushered them in. They didn't have to face the kind of formal procedures that anyone else, um, immigrating to this country would have faced at this time. And so I think the, the comparison is more important in the difference in a lot of ways than in the parallel.
2: Speaking of that, is your research interdisciplinary um, and where would you fit it within um, scholarship?
0: Yeah, I think this book is drawing on a lot of different kinds of um, histories. It's first and foremost in education history and making arguments about public schools and the work that public schools do and the unequal education that's been offered to students in this country. Um, it's really important that it's set in El Paso, where over half of the student population was Mexican American. And I know we'll talk more about those differences um, in the interview. Um, but it also is, draws on Borderlands history. It's a history about this place. Um, and it's about Cold War history and the unique role that children played in Cold War culture and politics. Um, and so, and then I had to just read. A lot of history that I was less familiar with, the history of diplomacy, um, a little bit on the history of technology, quite a bit on German history, Um, just as sort of background for writing the book. I don't think uh, the book makes significant contributions necessarily in those fields, but um, it draws on a lot of different kinds of history that that were not things that I was always familiar with and and I think contributes um, in a couple of different
2: fields. Mm-hmm. Where does the Mexican American influence come into this? Uh, what effect did it have on you know relocated German families who are living in this El Paso region that is very much culturally attached to you know these Spanish speaking people?
0: Yeah, so over half of both the civic civic population and the school population was Mexican American. Um, And this is a huge part of the story. It's central to the story because um, these Mexican-American children were segregated from white children. So schools in the Southwest, more largely, including El Paso, were called either American if they were for white children or Mexican if they were for Mexican-American children. And this nomenclature is um, really significant um, and tells us a lot about the differences um, in how those schools conceived of their students and, and how they treated and educated them. So, the German children, the paper club children, were immediately integrated into American schools, which meant that they attended schools with um, teachers. I'll, 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 let me back up and say that almost every teacher in El Paso at this time, with the exception of a handful, were white Anglo women um, who, who, by and large, did not speak Spanish. Um, so these American schools um, were better resourced. They had teachers who were often more experienced and were happier to be there. Um, the buildings themselves were often um, really different. Mexican-American schools tended to be incredibly overcrowded, so much so that children often had to attend school in shifts for part of a day. They often lacked cafeterias and libraries, which meant that they lacked um, really fo- foundational services um, that other students had. Um, the students in uh, Mexican schools were beaten for or otherwise punished for speaking Spanish in school, including sometimes on the playground. And this wasn't, um, this is again sort of just pro forma school policy across the Southwest. And so schooling was a radically different experience for Mexican-American and Anglo children. And the German children, the paperclip children in many ways, just illuminate um, the differences given that they were foreign children who were treated oftentimes as more American or potentially American than their American-born neighbors here.
2: So... With, America's, with Americanness at the forefront, um, is there an element of propaganda to reach out to the community? Uh, what about anti-Russian thinking? Uh, what about the labeling of Mexican-Americans as possibly being fascist? Uh, what, what do you think about it?
0: Yeah, this is a story about, I mean, I call it public relations. Um, it is propaganda in a lot of ways, both in terms of the work that schools, and the El Paso Press did to um, shine a really positive light on these paperclip children and to present them as enthusiastic, naturally smart, naturally hardworking, um, ideal students and ideal children versus um, Mexican-American children and parents who um, were at the mercy of a number of different kinds of narratives, but one of them was anti-communist. And we see this in the Cold War in a lot of places, the ways in which um, people of color are um, at risk of being called communist for doing things that um, the Anglos or white people don't like. And so, for example, when a group uh, when a PTA a group of um, parents at a school in the most Mexican part of El Paso, it's called South El Paso or El Segundo Barrio, where the concentration of Mexican-Americans was largest. Um, they protested that their students were, their children were taking classes in hallways um, and in the auditorium with multiple other classes because their school was so crowded. And they protested to the school superintendent that the, this was wrong in the um, That, in fact, an Anglo school had gotten an edition put on before theirs, and theirs was more crowded. And he called them communists and walked out of the room. So it's a story both about propaganda, but also about how these terms and ways of thinking become weaponized and used against parents and children um, and used to justify unequal segregated schooling.
2: Yeah, before you actually mentioned, uh, you know, some of the demographic of of Anglo teachers, particularly women, I really am interested. I think the audience also will be interested in uh, the schools that were behind this. What were the roles of teachers um, during, during this time and how were these schools being run?
0: Well, the role of teachers was... Um you know, kind of like what it was everywhere else, which was, I think, to uphold the political and social systems that were um, both local and, um, and national. So um, ch- teachers in El Paso were working in segregated schools in a couple of different ways um, El Paso has always had a really small African-American population, but we did have one African-American school called the Frederick Douglass School that was also located in South El Paso. Um, and then it had, you know, Mexican-American segregation, which was upheld and codified differently. Um, and so they were first and foremost um, upholders of both these um, Legal systems of segregation and equity, and then also, you know, um, the kind that were just sort of upheld uh, in, in different ways, either through, for example, Mexican American um, school segregation often happened through school policy, since there was no sort of um, other way of upholding it and zoning laws. And so they became, you know, the representatives of this civic structure. And I um, quote a number of teachers um, in the book, and I think we see some kind of range of thinking and opinion um, in them. But by and large, you know, a lot of the sort of racism and inequity that we see in the book was invisible to them, even as they were the people who were, um, were upholding it.
2: Is there an element of public history still remaining in El Paso? Are any of these schools visitable today?
0: Most of these schools are still operating today. Um, And yeah, there's a really strong sense of public history in El Paso. It's been really a joy over the last few months to give talks in El Paso because um, El Pasoans are differently invested and interested in the story in some ways because it is theirs. So, for example, the policies that I talk about, about um, sort of slapping or hitting or putting students in closets for speaking Spanish. This isn't something that um, a lot of El Pasoans need to read about, they know it. Um, they know it from that generation's history. It was common and just common knowledge. Um, and you know, some of these schools that I talk about that were deeply, um, well, all the schools were deeply segregated, but the Mexican American schools that were real sites of inequity, but also resistance, have really strong student alumni organizations and people are really proud um, to have um, such a long history in these schools. So it's, the Borderlands is a fascinating place for so many reasons, but I love how much it feels like living history here.
2: What about the theme of undocumentation and asylum seekers at the border, even now? Um, is it more of the same or is it different today when we're talking about the education of migrants and ultimately you know the goal of of being a dreamer or having u.s citizenship
0: well i think that this actually tags on to your previous question too because the um south el paso the part that abuts the border that is the border is still um 93 percent immigrant um, it's one of, it's in the 10% of, um, poorest neighborhoods in the nation. Um, it's, I think 97% low income. Um, and as I said, 93% immigrants. So in a lot of ways, um, this part of El Paso still looks, um, really similar today. And that has affected schools and challenged schools in a lot of the same ways. So there was, for example, a testing scandal here um, years ago. Our school superintendent from that time ended up going to federal prison because um, students were um, encouraged to stay home or were threatened, really, um, about coming to school during testing time because they didn't want those test scores to be counted and held against um, the schools in that part of the city. And so um, a lot of the issues that we talk about in terms of um, the difficulties that um, immigration presents or even just the specter of immigration, because as I say in the book, I mean, the great majority of students that um, this book is about in terms of Mexican-American students were American-born citizens. They weren't immigrants. They were just seen as foreign and read as foreign because they were Mexican-American and they were also seen as undemocratic um, because they were Mexican-American and antisocial, because they are Mexican-American. So both actual immigration problems and then just the sort of imagination or imagined immigration um, continues to challenge, um, well, this nation in um, this region.
2: Well, going back to the Nazi scientists who were, you know, immigrants of their own right, um how is Jim Crow as an experience really being fostered as part of as part of their living experience? Um, can you talk about Black Americans um, also who, you know, are dealing with segregation?
0: Yeah. So even though the uh, Black American population was uh, really quite small in El Paso, Um, The German scientists probably had more interactions with black Americans because they lived at Fort Bliss. Um, They were not allowed to live in El Paso. Uh, They lived in these retired hospital barracks that were surrounded by barbed wire. But, you know, the the military um, had more had a higher African-American population than El Paso itself did. And so there is, for example, a story in the book about um, the soldiers being escorted to a theater soon after they got here and not being allowed into this theater, not because of them, but because their escort was an African-American soldier. Um, And there are a number of stories in the book like that, um, where we see how these Germans had more rights and privileges in many ways than African-Americans did who had just fought in the war um, or, you know, who didn't fight in the war, but were Americans. Um, and so it's an important backdrop that um, I talk about in a couple of ways. It was also um, because the families came first to, they took a ship to New York. Well, the, the scientists became before their families, but the families, the wives and children came from ship to New York and then took a train from um, New York to um, El Paso, and that was really their first interaction with Americans. And um, there's a really riveting story that I won't ruin by trying to retell it here, but um, of what happened when those German children met Black soldiers on the train.
2: Yeah. Um An annihilation of landscape. That's always coming up for me. I I remember annihilation of landscape because it's associated with rail lines and trains. Um, Can you tell us more about that journey from New Jersey to El Paso? It seems like a good distance. And I'm wondering why, you know, they decided to come all the way to El Paso if there were no other uh, possibly um, relocation areas.
0: Well, the families had no um, say in where they came to, and El Paso was chosen in part because um, we're quite um, close to White Sands, which is um, the proving grounds for missiles. It was just an ideal, like, physical location for the scientists to do their work um, for just climate and geography reasons. Uh, So um, the families didn't have a say in it, but they talked, you know, I, I talked... the children about that train trip and um yeah it's a it's one way to see the united states right to make it all the way over and a lot of their recollections were about um the people in the cars the fact that the cars had carpeting the fact that these children who had um um even though they were german and their parents worked for the state had had um Experienced in some way food shortages uh, that they just remember, you know, they thought of these train cars as real sites of luxury. They remember women wearing nail polish, Um, but also seeing the landscape. And um, one former child remembered the mother's just talking about the houses and the cars and the washing machines, and like these things that they had never seen, but they came to identify with the American nuclear home and with being American. And so even the seemingly innocuous, um, you know, physical journey, I think was an important initial lesson in them and in American capitalism and American society.
2: There also seems to be, or that there was a repatriation of some Mexican students in El Paso, but do you right now have any statistical numbers you'd like to share with us about the demographics that were taking place and altering?
0: Well, the repatriation that you're talking about happened during the Great Depression. Um, it's been well documented by historians, but uh, you know, that Mexican Americans were, you um, sent to Mexico, even if they had never even lived in Mexico, um, as part of a sort of um, political response to depression and to fears that Mexicans were taking jobs that Anglo people could have. Um, by the time that the story takes place, that um, population is rebounding, their people are coming back. Um, Like I said, the city is about half Mexican-American, but really this is the beginning of um, the um, military-industrial complex, which changes um, really the entire Southwest. And so um, El Paso is just growing very quickly at this time, both in terms of Mexican-Americans and Anglos. The percentages stay fairly stable over this decade, um, even as the city itself grows exponentially exponentially.
2: Is there a nationalist identity that was fomenting itself in the western frontier um, and the set the settling of these uh, like Indian lands, historically speaking?
0: Well, um, there's a chapter in the book about um, so the social studies education that El Paso students received, and I focus in particular um, on uh, um, curriculum on cowboys and Indians. Um, and the ways in which this is used to teach um, El Paso children about democracy, about heroes, about individualism and self-government, right? That all of this, the cowboy represents all of these virtues. And the idea that um, that these are virtues that are more immediately available or teachable to um, or even natural to white children. Um, even as all children learned these lessons. Um, and so in that sense, the fact that these scientists ended up in El Paso is really important too, because in many ways um, El Paso and the Southwest and the West was the United States that these people already knew. Um, Germans had an enormous fascination with, um, with Western mythology, what, American Western mythology. And with cowboys and Indians, they had their own entire culture around this. Buffalo Bill um, went to Europe and visited uh, Germany many times. There was an author named Carl May, who um, kind of fashioned himself to be a German, uh, James Fenimore Cooper type who wrote incredibly popular um, uh, fiction books even though he had never even been to the United States (laughs) that were set in the West where um, there were cowboys and Indian stories where all the cowboys were German. Uh, And so, and these were stories that were incredibly common in German homes that Hitler loved and told the Nazi teachers organization that they needed to teach that were very familiar to um, if not the children, their parents, the scientists, you know, just depending on kind of how old the children were Um, so they talk about coming to the United States and it being, um, or coming to Fort Bliss in El Paso and it being the landscape that they had always imagined um, the United States to be. Uh, and, and they had also, I should say, um, one of the ways that the armies prepared the army prepared um, the families to come over was by showing them Westerns um, in the sort of like holding community they, they were at as they collected them before they came to the United States, the holding community in Bavaria. So, um, it's really important that they ended up here for all of those reasons. And for the lessons again, that it was teaching, um, the German children about where they belonged in this history and in this society.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS you need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Becoming oriented to American life. I think also, and you write about this extensively, Um, incorporates vacation time um, and leisure. Uh, Tell us more about vacations and how, you know, German families uh, conducted themselves in like New Mexico and, you know, becoming cowboys in their own way.
0: Yeah. So the family's freedoms kind of increased over time. Um so I talked earlier about how at first the scientists, before their families arrived, needed to be escorted off of base. That changed considerably over the three years that the families were here. And again, the children were super important. Um, you know, the um, the military was more willing to believe that the scientists weren't going to do anything untoward if their families were with them. And so they would vacation a lot in the Southwest, much as Americans would. They would drive cars um, and they would stay in, um, particularly in New Mexico. Um, There were a lot of places within just a few hours drive of El Paso where the landscape kind of changes and there's more forest. It looks a little bit more German. Um, But they would ride horses and hike and um, do things that were really a lot of the time familiar to them from their life in Germany. Um, And, um, you know, that was just a really common thread among all the former children that I talked to is um, remembering those vacations as really freeing and often is really echoing the ways in which their parents had grown up, which um, sometimes were part of organized youth culture groups um, that were both incredibly nationalistic, but also really focused on the the environment. Um, Kind of like scouts in some ways, Um, what we think of as scouts in this country, but with um, more um, obvious political dimensions to them. and, um, and, And yeah. And nationalist foundations to them
2: in educating the enemy. Are there examples of deportation? Because you know you have a lot of German families coming over. Um, the, I'm assuming that the the assumption was that they were going to stay there for a long time. Did any of them you know fail to acquire citizenship or have to leave America?
0: Yeah, a handful in Operation Paperclip did. And the one that's of greatest interest to me, they weren't deported, but they were denied American citizenship. Um, the last chapter in the book is about a woman named Ilsa Axter, who is a wife, who is in a lot of ways, the most notorious person in the group. She had been a Montessori teacher in Berlin in the 30s. And then when Hitler shut down Montessori schools, um, she went to work for the Nazi party and became um, a leader in the Nazi women's, um, a, a Nazi women's group. And um, the chapter about her is really about unraveling how someone who subscribed to these um, progressive, seemingly progressive ideas about children and education through Montessori could also hold these deeply regressive um, and fundamentalist um, uh, political ideas and how she negotiated between the two of them. And what that can tell us about American teachers and progressivism in the United States this time, progressive education. But anyway, she was incredibly notorious in some ways because she she was a woman. She couldn't um, as easily hide behind um, her career the way in which many of the scientists and many German men did, right? She wasn't um, as obliged to join the Nazi party and and participate in some of the ways that she did. Uh, And she was covered in the New York Times and she created a number of difficulties for the operation and for the group. And because of her, her family was not given citizenship when the rest of the families were. And honestly, the group kind of um, divorced themselves from her for a number of different reasons that I also talk about. She and Werner von Braun just didn't get along. Um, he thought she was too aggressive, that she was too much of a social climber, that she was too power-hungry. Um, all those things may have been true at the same time that um, it was only a problem because she was a woman. Um And so they weren't deported, but when they weren't given American citizenship, they saw the writing on the wall and they did return to Germany. And I talked to her grandchildren who now live in Germany and Austria.
2: How specialized was the school curriculum, particularly when it comes to language education? Um, I'm so like reminiscent of youth culture and also slang. Um, Did any of that come up in your book?
0: Yeah, so I should say that this book is really focused on elementary schools because almost all of the children who came over here were elementary school aged or younger. Um, There were just a handful that were older, and part of that might have been, you know, families not wanting to relocate their children at that time in their lives. And I think part of it was also those were children who would have experienced Hitler youth, and they just... Um, presented a different kind of difficulty <laughs> in terms of this democratization project. So um, I really focus on elementary schools. And, you know, elementary schools are um, not exactly specialized, right, even as they're highly um, sort of thoughtful and purposeful in the curriculum. Uh, but in terms of language education, there was something really interesting happening in El Paso. I mean, I already talked about. Um, what would happen when Mexican-American children spoke Spanish, which, by the way, I'll just say was not what happened when the paperclip children spoke German. Um, they were never um, physically, uh, um, they, they, they never experienced corporal punishment in school, even as they did at home and talked about that as being like a fairly routine part of German culture. But the other thing that was happening in El Paso schools that were, was that Anglo children were being taught Spanish um because of parental demand and because of their fear that their children were going to lose out on jobs. If all of the Mexican American students in the city or children became bilingual and their children were not. Um, And so there's also a part in the book that talks about just the Anglo investment in learning Spanish um, and why they had that investment and why um, Mexican American children who um, sometimes their parents also wanted them to learn academic Spanish were not offered the same.
2: And what about English?
0: Well, so I talked about, you know, English was often taught by punishment to Mexican-American students. And for the German students, um, in the summer of 1946, after um, the first group had arrived, in 1947 as well, they... um, teachers from El Paso schools came to Fort Bliss and gave them sort of intensive English classes. And um, those classes looked, uh, first of all, they were particular, right? Like there were no, uh, Mexican-American students weren't offered summer school to learn English. And the great majority of Mexican-American students, I should say, entered into school not speaking English because their lives were so segregated that they really weren't around English speakers until they entered school. But these German children, as they were learning English, would be rewarded with ice cream for learning English um, rather than, you know, slapped when they spoke German. And so it was just a completely different sort of punishment versus reward system of learning.
2: Can you talk more about the Fort Bliss as a as a base location? Also, where did these German uh, and Mexican-Americans work in the 40s and 50s for their career?
0: So Fort Bliss is really huge. It's a huge military installation. I think it's like close to the size of Connecticut or something like that. It, it crosses both. Um, I mean, the part that I'm talking about is in urban El Paso, but it expands out into New Mexico. Um, and it was chosen, as I said earlier, both because of its proximity to Alamogordo and to the um, to White Sands. Um, But also just because, you know, it's clear skies, it's the Southwest, um, it's just a really good place for anyone doing work on that depends on the skies (laughs) in any way. Um, So that's why it was chosen and it expanded pretty rapidly in this period. It had been used as a POW um, site before during the war. And so to some degree, El Pasoans were used to seeing German and Italian prisoners um, working in like pecan orchard, orchards um, and things like that. Before the scientists came, it wasn't the first Germans that El Pasoans, they were not the first Germans that El Pasoans had ever met. Um, so um, so that's about, El Paso, about Fort Bliss. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the other part of your question.
2: Um. It was really just about people's working experience. Um, did oh. you mention Mexican Americans? Yeah,
0: yeah. So, so I mean, these these Germans were obviously all professionals. And they were all either engineers or scientists of, of some sort, or or you know, some of them were draftsmen. Um, Mexican Americans w- were the laborers of the Southwest. They did the work that built most of the industries of the Southwest from agricultural to, um, to uh, mining, to oil. Um, most of this work was incredibly low paid and highly physical. But part of that concern that English, um were starting to feel about um, learning Spanish was seeing that Mexican-Americans were working into, um, if not managerial jobs, Um, Positions that were closer to managerial positions. And so for a number of reasons, um, Anglos felt like uh, that they needed to compete.
2: Cold War escalation, particularly into like the 1960s, was the threat of the USSR affecting El Pasoans?
0: Yeah, um, for sure. There was a concern that um, the Russians could um, have an important presence in Mexico. Um, There's a quote in a book that I talk about by someone who argued that students needed to learn Spanish because the the Soviets might approach um, the United States or infiltrate the United States through the Rio Grande um so and then there was you know there's this historic sense that um that Mexicans could become like a sort of um fourth arm for for the right so um there was absolutely that concern and then just as i said earlier too the sense that mexican americans were less american um um and less democratic and that they presented a real sort of weakness
2: what kind of hobbies did um, some of the migrants carry with them? I remember reading about saddleback horse riding. Um, wh- were these things becoming more common?
0: Um, well, I mean, I talked earlier about the Germans and the sort of um, their love of the outdoors. Um, one thing that I found really interesting and important was a number of the scientists started these um Agricultural, like either farms or they rented plots of land, um, even though they were well paid by El Paso standards to begin with to um, make more money on the side. Some of them even hired braceros. Uh, so I found that, I guess you could call that a hobby or a pastime. It was something they, they were doing that wasn't work, um, that was really significant in this coming together of worlds. Um, you know, they talked a lot about, uh, the children talked about loving, you know, Western films and American juvenile culture and comic books. Um, there's a picture that I show in talks that isn't in the book of, um, a number of paperclip children just sitting out on the lawn reading comic books. And it's like kind of this, like very prototypical American scene in so many different ways. Um, so I don't think, uh, I think they blended in really quite easily.
2: A longing for a return to Germany was that there uh, a of uh, the Baltic Sea. Um, what what about the Germany that was still in Europe? Um, is any of their familial lineages of uh, uh, history go, going back to that remain? Did any of that remain with them? Did anyone go back?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think all of them came here thinking they would live here for the rest of their lives. And the military didn't offer it outright. um, So they didn't have reason to sort of assume that that would be true. And I think um, for a lot of the women in particular, uh, very few of whom spoke any English um, or had significant ways of sort of socializing outside of this community. I think there were a lot of really conflicted feelings about going back um, you know, I talk in the book about uh, families who um, their the industries that they may have possessed or family businesses were gone after the war. I think, you know, something they talked about less openly in the families is what some of those fathers may have faced if they had gone back. Um, so, for some families, there really wasn't a Germany to return to um, for a lot of reasons, a lot of families were happy to start over here. But, you know, that kind of depended on who they were in the family. Um, And, you know, a number of children talked about their, their mothers feeling depressed, um, feeling isolated, feeling tired of some of the other women in the group who were kind of their entire social structure. So it was a really complicated, it was a complicated thing.
2: Was there any Nazi ideology that Germans got reprimanded for? Are there stories of that?
0: Um, There was. So I'll start by saying um, they were vetted before they came over for any ardent Nazis, which just meant that they were vetted for people who were going to give the military or the United States trouble. And trouble, really, I think, in terms of public relations Um, people with all sorts of relationships to Nazism came, came through, and you can see that in a number of different ways. You can see scientists who joined the Nazi party before it was mandated to do so, mandatory to do so. You can see families who other branches of their family went to South America when they came here. You know, there are all sorts of just sort of, um, lurking stories there, um, But, and it was a concern, you know, they were surveyed by the military. We know in part about these kinds of vacations that you asked for about earlier because they were followed, um, even as they were allowed to go, they were still followed. And some of what I know of their vacations is not from the children's recollections, but it's from, um, um, FBI reports. So, uh, there was concern. Um, it's less clear what happened to that ideology, Um, when the parents got here you know anyone who knows German history or or does German history knows there was just a lot of silence there was a lot of silence in families and that was true here as much as in Germany coming here didn't make it any more comfortable for families to talk about these kinds of things within themselves so it was a little hard for me to access for a lot of different reasons what happened to that Nazi ideology Um, but to me in some ways, it was interesting but not important because this isn't a story about the parents. It's a story about the children. And it's really a story about how Americans saw the children as much as how the children saw themselves.
2: Have you written about the transition to Huntsville for these families, not only for the families and children, but about the memory of, and legacy of these families um, in El Paso after they had moved on?
0: I don't, because there's a very good book about that already, Monique Laney's um, German Rocketeers in the Heart of Dixie. Um, and she, um, she is really interested, by and large, in the adults. Um, but she does talk about, uh, about what it was like for them to live off base um, as white Southerners in the segregated South. Um, and so I'm really interested in thinking about the preparation for that experience right here in El Paso. Um, but I would recommend that book to people who want to know both sides of the story.
2: What, uh, living family members remain today to tell us about this?
0: Well, a good number of the children, um, still survive. And those are people that I interviewed. And in fact, I've continued to talk to since the book has come out and sort of been able to say like, um, so, you know, what do you think, what's it like to see your story in, in this book? Um, and they've been incredibly generous as they were throughout. Um, and just, uh, yeah, it's been really great to talk with them. I also talked to a, you know, interviewed a number of El Pasoans. I had to do less interviews, um, with Mexican-American El Paso in part because there's a fantastic oral history institute that's housed here at my institution at Utah that talk to people of this generation. Often it's uh, much closer to that time. A lot of, some of these interviews go back to the seventies and eighties um, when those memories would have been even fresher. Um, and so, you know, I, I've, I've ended up interv- none of these people live in El Paso. Um, And so I've been talking um, to people all over the world, really, because as I said, like Ilsa Oxter's grandchildren are are European. Um, And so it's been amazing to see how the story has radiated out and has has roots in so many different places.
2: Take us back to UTEP for a moment um, and let us know about your work, your research to date. Um, This has been amazing. I'm sure... There are people that want to know more. Are you going to have a seminar or a seminar? Seminars? Um, are we invited?
0: Um, so I have some talks in, coming up in the fall, but none of them are virtual that I know of. Um, I would encourage people if they want to to invite me. I would love to talk to people either in person or virtually virtually. Um, the book has a number of really fantastic images in it um, that were shared with me, but there are so many that I couldn't even put in the book. And so I love giving talks and being able to share um, to share the documents and images that people gave me. It's even you know different than just talking about the story. Um, so um, and I, and I, there is I think one version online for sure that people can see through Macri, the Mexican American Civil Rights Institute. That should be housed on Facebook. Uh, I think that talk was in early June, so people can see some of the images there. Um, but I don't, I don't know what else is um, coming up. Uh, my author page at Chicago has has a bunch of these links on it too, for people who want to see, um, in particular, the other pieces that I've written that have come out of this book.
2: Yeah. Uh, what about your research? What are you researching now? Um, and where is this? ultimately gonna be integrated into your projects moving forward?
0: Um, I'm not sure what comes next. Um, As people can see in my popular writing, I really try to connect this history to the present and and to present day schools. And present day schools are facing a lot of tremendous difficulties Um, right now. I think public schools are at risk um, as much as, you know, democracy itself is, um, there's a real effort to dismantle them. And so whatever writing I do um, is going to be, is going to have a public element to it as well, or maybe wholly public, um, but it's going to try to think about some of the issues that schools are facing th- through history, you know, with a historic grounding,
2: are there any closing thoughts you'd like to leave your audience of New Books Network with?
0: Uh, I don't I don't think so. Um, it's been a pleasure to be here today and fun to talk to you, Nathan.
2: Great. Uh, this has been an interview with New Books Network and Dr. Jana Perillo of UTEP. And on behalf of the fine folks at NBN, we thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to a podcast on history. Farewell from your host, Nathan Moore, signing out.